0: Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor in chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, Thomas J. Baker. But first, for more information about the Mill Creek View podcast, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View, Tennessee. While you're there, Please subscribe welcome to our people in the news episode where i interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth today we are talking with author thomas baker thomas j baker had over 33 years of experience in the fbi in a wide variety of roles this included international experience serving as the legal attache in canberra australia and paris france as the assistant special agent in charge of the fbi washington field office he was the first agent on the scene of president reagan's shooting tom directed the tom directed the fbi's response to the that crisis hmm. uh oh that's what the <laughs> i'm sorry about that tom. since retiring from the fbi he has continued to remain engaged with law enforcement as a consultant dealing with biometrics and cyber issues his commentary appears in the wall street journal and the washington examiner Tom has a BS from a Fordham University, a MPA from John Jay College, and he completed the Senior Command Course at the British Police Staff College in Bramshill, England. The Fall of the FBI: How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. This book is not mere memoir; it is history. From the shooting of President Reagan and the death of Princess Diana to the TWA 800 crash, and even getting. Marching orders from St. Mother Teresa, Baker's story shows how the FBI has played a pivotal role in our country's history, a fun-filled adventure with exciting skyjackings, kidnappings, and bank robberies. At the same time, the reader will see the reverence the Bureau had for the Constitution and the concern agents held for the rights of each American. Sir, sorry that I called you Tom. That's informal. I tried to be uh, <laughs> I got thrown for a loop there with the Thomas, but how are you today?
2: I'm fine. And Steve, you can call me Tom.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much. And you can call me Steve. Um, uh, Where are you speaking to us from?
2: Uh, Right now, I'm at uh, our home in the Colorado Rockies, uh, just outside Aspen, Colorado, uh, enjoying uh, a little bit cooler weather here than in the rest of the country right now.
1: Yes, I hear it's lovely this time of year. So um, I wanted to start this talk off um, about your book, but of course, the origins of the FBI and to how we got here. Um, This young guy, J. Edgar Hoover, accepted the Justice Department clerkship uh, back in 1917, age 22. Top paid $990 a year, which is like $22,000 in today's dollars, so not very much, um, and exempted him from the draft. Okay. So he soon became the head of the division's Alien Enemy Bureau authorized by President Woodrow Wilson at the beginning of World War I to arrest and jail allegedly disloyal foreigners without trial. He received additional authority from the 1917 Espionage Act out of a list of 1,400 suspicious Germans living in the U.S. The Bureau arrested 98 and designated 1,172 as arrestable. Okay, not very great origins in my opinion. 24-year-old Hoover became head of the Bureau of Investigation's new General Intelligence Division, also known as the Radical Division, because its goal was to monitor and disrupt the work of domestic radicals. Sounds familiar. In 1921, Hoover rose in the Bureau of Investigation to deputy head, and in 1924, the Attorney General made him the acting director. On May 10, 1924, President Calvin Coolidge, appointed him Hoover as the fifth director of the Bureau of Investigation, partly in response to allegations that the prior director, William J. Burns, was involved in the Teapot Dome scandal. When Hoover took over the Bureau of Investigation, it had approximately 650 employees, including 441 special agents. Hoover fired all female agents and banned the future hiring of them. Um, Before I go on to my next little history lesson for readers or listeners who are not familiar, do you hold Jagger Hoover in high admiration, and when you started in the bureau, did he have a different uh, persona or reputation than what I just read?
2: Uh, he did actually. Um, he, his reputation grew, and his his authority and powers grew over the decades. He was the director of the FBI for almost fifty years, half a century and And what happened in turn, um, he was a creature of our political system. Each president, whether Democrat or Republican, whether FDR, Truman, Eisenhower, they all gave him more power, Lyndon Johnson as well. Uh, they all requested him to do things. And some of the, the things that have come to light today or to roost today actually have their, their origins in that early history. And Steve, you, you went way back in the history, um, and there's very few of us around today who were alive back then, I'm sure. Uh, but one of the things that happened was these presidents, FDR, others, Truman, Eisenhower, they're asking J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI to undertake certain missions and certain uh, assignments to help them gather intelligence as to what was going on. And there, rarely, there really wasn't the guidelines. Uh, there wasn't legislation to allow for a lot of this. So in response to some of the abuses of the or perceived abuses of the Hoover years in 1978, after the the revelations of the Pike and Church Committee, which looked into a lot of these matters, which you started to get into, uh, we had the Congress pass the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, Pfizer, of which a lot of people who follow the news have heard a lot about in the last uh, few years because Pfizer, it turns out, was abused During the Russian collusion investigation uh, that was conducted, uh, initiated anyway, by James Comey uh, and that and then carried out under the special prosecutor, uh, Bob Mueller. So Pfizer originally was a reform to kind of put the genie back in the bottle. That's a long answer to your short question.
1: Uh, yeah, but it is good because I'm trying to uh, establish where they came from—from from a nothing agency to uh, what we see today in front of the, uh, the the committees that were have news headlines are this very day. And so, in the early 1930s, criminal gangs carried out large number of bank robberies in the Midwest. Uh, they used their superior firepower as fast getaway cars to elude local law enforcement agencies and avoid arrest. Many of these criminals frequently made newspaper headlines across the United States, particularly John Dillinger. Hoover was credited for overseeing several highly publicized captures or shootings of outlaws and bank robbers. These included those of Machine Gun Kelly in 1933, Dillinger in 34, and uh, Alvin Carpus in 1936, which led to the Bureau's powers being broadened. He used that pretty well. Uh, Hoover had a reputation as an invest an inveterate horse player and was known to send special agents to place $100 bets for him. Hoover once said the Bureau had much more important functions than arresting bookmakers and gamblers. So during the 1930s, Hoover persistently denied the existence of organized crime. Despite numerous gangland shootings, as mafia groups struggled for control of the lucrative profits deriving from illegal alcohol sales during Prohibition and later for controlled prostitution, illegal drugs and other criminal enterprises, Many writers believe Hoover's denial of the Mafia's existence and his failure to use the full force of the FBI to investigate it were due to Mafia gangsters Meyer Lansky and Frank Costello's possession of maybe some embarrassing uh, photographs. Do you think the agency has been co-opted by crime from its beginnings?
2: Uh, No, I don't. And and would you describe the the so-called gangster era? did lead to the increase of the powers of the FBI and to the increase in the, the reputation and, if you will, the legend of the FBI. And some of it has a very sound foundation in constitutional law, if you will, because prior to that period in the 30s and the 40s, um, the late 20s, 30s and into the 40s, there was no inst- interstate crime. So there were very few federal criminal violations other than crimes directly against the federal government, many of which were tax crimes, were handled by other agencies. And the public became aware in this phenomenon you described of the bank robbers and others fleeing interstate now that the automobile was becoming more and more available, there were paved highways from the East Coast to the West Coast. So one by one, using the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution, Congress passed additional laws, giving the FBI responsibility for those laws. Uh, The the most obvious one in early on was the interstate transportation of stolen automobiles. Uh, Then we got into the interstate transportation of stolen property, theft from interstate shipment. And of course, a lot of these things affected the railroads, which were much more important in those days than they are today. And and so on, and then of course the bank and the banking interests were very concerned. So because a lot of the banks had in the '30s under FDR became federally insured, they then passed federal laws uh, making it a federal. They made it a federal crime to rob federally insured banks, which was virtually all banks eventually. So bank robbery became a criminal uh, investigative specialty of the FBI. Uh, and years ago, that was one of the violations that most new agents cut their teeth on.
1: And uh, the Lindbergh baby, right? That was a famous uh, yes. FBI favored uh, case that, that brought them well, to prominence.
2: Yes, and I have a chapter in my book about that, not about the Lindbergh case, but cases that grew out of that. Uh, th- those cases captured the headlines. Of course, you had even more of a tabloid press then than you do now. And gangsters were using kidnapping. The Lindbergh case became most famous because the, the, the family, the Lindbergh family that had their child taken, were very sympathetic. He was a national hero at that point. Uh, and they were a very attractive couple. And, what, and, what, and in that case, it turned out that the, the perpetrator did immediately travel interstate. So there was, kidnapping became a federal violation kidnapping for ransom became a federal violation and it became an FBI specialty. And there were a whole series of kidnappings, uh, throughout the thirties. And then it died down a bit. And there's still occasionally to the modern day kidnapping cases. And they became an FBI specialty because the kidnapping case under the, unlike a bank robbery or other straight up violent thefts and crimes, uh, had to be handled subtly. And the Bureau developed a, a, a textbook uh, doctrine, if you will, in kidnapping cases. They developed a lot of special special skills, but they, their doctrine was essentially, number one, the safe return of the victim. And, of course, initially, like the Lindbergh case, many of the victims were children. The safe return of the victim. The, then the, the subsequent priorities were capturing the kidnapping kidnappers and recovering the ransom money. So those were the the three objectives in a kidnapping case. But number one always was the safe return of the victim. I have a chapter in my book about the Mackle kidnapping, which happened in Florida uh, in the late 19th, about 1970. I think you can check the date. Uh, And I key off the, the explanation of the Lindbergh kidnapping to go into that kidnapping case, which I had, a bit of hands-on experience with, and I was not the main agent by any means, but I was one of many, but that was a textbook case. And then more recently in history, in New Jersey, we had the kidnapping of the of Sid Russo, Sid Russo, who was the uh, international, pr- with the president and CEO of Exxon International. He was kidnapped. Both of those kidnappings were very si- uh, similar in that the victim was taken and placed in a box while negotiations were underway for the return of the victim and the payment of the ransom. Fortunately, in the Mackle kidnapping case, Barbara Jean Mackle, a young girl, was recovered. One of the agents who literally dug her body up and buried in this coffin and found her as a personal friend of mine, another agent that I worked very closely with on several cases, Jim Ciano, actually captured Gary Steven Christ, one of the two kidnappers in the swamps on the west coast of Florida. Uh, so that had a good outcome. The victim was recovered. The kidnappers were arrested, ultimately both of them. Unfortunately, Sid Russo's situation more recently in New Jersey, uh, by the time, uh, well, actually quite within hours or days after he was kidnapped, he died in the box. The kidnappers had him trapped in, uh, when that, once again, a couple also in that case, a man and a woman who performed the kidnapping were eventually captured. Uh, They were uh, sentenced to prison, and uh, and and it's just sad that uh, Sid Russo died in his tomb.
1: Yeah, it very much is, and I believe—correct me if I'm wrong—but those two uh, categories, let's just say, the the gangsters of the 30s and and uh, bank robbery and kidnappings that were high profile. kind of made the reputation of the FBI. When I grew up in the 70s and the 80s watching FBI on TV, thinking that maybe one day I'd want to carry a gun in a briefcase like that, that was the Federal Bureau I was talking about. Um, you have said, fast forward now to 1984, uh, agents were complaining quite a bit about something called 10-1-69. That was a program where it forced all the agents who had not served in one of what were then called the top 10 field offices, to be subject to transfer to one of them. Some of these folks had families, they had kids, they probably didn't want to up and move their family like a military family would have to do. That would have caused some problems. Was that a very dramatic turning point in the in the FBI from just doing the job where you could, uh, putting in a hard day's work and then all of a sudden becoming some kind of uh, org chart
2: No, uh, actually, and and I think that period was misunderstood and there were some, and I'll have to use the word, disgruntled individuals about that. I I was one of those people from my entire career early on, every few years I was transferred. And of course, I served twice in the New York City office, one of the biggest. And I also served uh, once in the uh, Washington field office, the second or third biggest field office in the FBI. And I just accepted it as part of the uh, as part of the lifestyle and part of the learning process to work in different areas. I initially worked, which was the common practice then, by the way. What happened then and led to this brief bump that you're talking about, uh, agents were most often sent to small field offices for their first assignment of a year, uh, and then after that sent to another office. It turns out they got to the point after its expansion of the bureau where a lot of substantial number of agents anyway, hadn't really served in a large office and that's where they needed the manpower. So they, they, they made that rule and there were some people who pushed back against it. Um, but eventually things were accommodations were worked out. In fact, the FBI took the lead amongst the federal agencies to get, which is now accepted everywhere by all federal employees, what they call locality pay. So in these bigger cities, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, et cetera, uh, there's a a differential in pay for all the federal workers. And that actually was started by and caused by the FBI back at the time of this particular little problem you referenced. 1984,
1: all right. So before 9-11, do you think that Nixon and Watergate changed the FBI from what was perceived maybe as a Republican patriotic, at least, ideological bureau to a more media-driven, left-wing, political-friendly agency under Bush, Clinton, and Bush, too? I find them all to be much more political middle-of-the-road, let's just say.
2: Well, I, I think the FBI, starting way back under Hoover, there always was an affinity uh, for the media, and by that I mean the, the cinematic media uh, there were movies made uh, you mentioned i think one of them the, with jimmy stewart the fbi story there were others with james cagney then i continued into television with ephron symbolis jr and the fbi story and these all for the pretty much focused on the the criminal violations that you and i have already talked about and even though the fbi had a responsibility for counterintelligence, uh which was just dumped on them starting in world war ii by FDR and others, uh, the mentality, the culture in the FBI was always one of law enforcement. So the key thing, and I think this is what's become to the come to a head and become an issue in the last four or five years. The key thing was that in a law enforcement agency, you live and work every day for when the day comes uh, that you're going to have to stand up in a courtroom before a judge or a jury and raise your right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help you God to a set of facts that is very different than an intelligence agency. Intelligence agencies by their very nature deal in deceit and deception. Uh, They work outside uh, or try to the bounds of the Constitution and they are almost by definition far more political. uh, I think the the negative press and the, and the problems that have come to light, in, which is the, the ultimate subject of my book in the last few years, is a result of this change, this shift to a intelligence culture and away from a swear-to-tell-the-truth law enforcement culture.
1: Mm-hmm. And in the end of the Watergate era, it was John Dean and the FBI's acting director, L. Patrick Gray, who just passed away, I think, last year, rest his soul different operations destroyed evidence from hunt safe so how could a future republican like reagan or ford trust them um only ex-cia head hw bush would you know know enough to to do that i think so you talked about in your book the big change the big pivot i i tried to preface it with uh, where it got to in the first place and then what would be changing and how terrible it was that it did change after 9 11 for instance um fbi employees including the management of the new york field office like you said one of the biggest if not the biggest uh sounded the alarm over the abuse of national security surveillance powers warning then director robert Mueller that the bureau should not be operating counterterrorism investigations based solely and exclusively on national security agency intercepts of conversations of u.s citizens what made him think he could do that and why did he pick up the ball and make the the pivot.
2: Well, in in the preface to my book, The Fall of the FBI, I identify one crucial incident that I think encapsulates everything. Bob Mueller, Bob Mueller of Special Counsel fame, became the FBI director literally three or four days before the September 11th attacks, which happened on a Tuesday. September 11th was a Tuesday. The following Saturday, he'd only been director now a little more than a week. He was summoned to the presidential retreat in Camp David, Maryland, uh, where President George W. Bush was hunkered down with, with his top national security advisors. And Bob Mueller came in and he had with him in his hand the report of the FBI's investigation of the September 11th attacks, which the FBI codenamed Pentbomb. Bomb. From Pentagon, Pennsylvania bombing, and, and there were only three and a half days, really, that elapsed between the attack on Tuesday, September 11th, and this Saturday morning, September 15th in Camp David, and he produced the report, and the report was just a, a marvelous report. The FBI had done what it does best, investigate, and they had identified all 19 hijackers. They had identified all their financing had identified all their travel, their rental cars, their credit cards, and all their connections and associations, tracing back to al-Qaeda, the base. And when he was done with that report, he and he has told us this numerous times, he was expecting praise and thanks. And George W. Bush just looked at him and said, I don't care about that. I just want to know how you're going to prevent the next one. Later that morning, uh, George Tennant, who at that time was the director of the CIA, presented a plan of action going forward. When Tennant was done talking, George, and this is in other people's books who were there, George W. Bush said, that's great. He turned and looked at Mueller and he said, that's what I want to hear. Mueller left that meeting feeling humiliated and he left it bound and determined to change the FBI's culture, and that's the word he used, culture from that of a law enforcement agency to an intelligence agency. And that's what he did. And some of it might have been understandable at the time, but it had a lot of unintended consequences. And it had a lot of bad consequences.
1: Mm. So he didn't reject the advice he he walked out of there with his tail between his legs and decided to spend the rest of his career changing the agency to a investigative agency.
2: To an intelligence agency. Intelligence agency. Yeah.
1: So so in 2013, when he retired, hundreds of FBI employees signed a letter to incoming director James Comey, warning him about, quote, political bias and political compromise of the FBI and saying that Mueller had led the Bureau in the wrong direction as a result of its transformation from a law enforcement to an intelligence organization. So was he a failure? Who? Uh, Bob Mueller.
2: I think Bob Mueller is at the root of a lot of today's problems. Bob Mueller's handpicked successor was James Comey. James Comey's poor leadership exacerbated the cultural change that had begun with Mueller. Uh, And and that is, and and other changes that happened after September 11. For instance, the Pfizer Act, which I referenced, uh, which which its purpose when it was passed in 1978 was to provide a legal vehicle for gathering intelligence on foreign agents resident in this country. So it was to be used only on foreign agents and it was to be used only to gather intelligence, not to gather evidence. So it had a much lower standard, if you will, of probable cause. What, what, is, what happened then after September 11th It was amended and amended and amended again and loosened up and its use increased and increased from a few hundred FISA warrants a year to to several thousand a year, and which is the situation to this day. And now we know from the inspector general's reports uh, on the FISA problems of the FBI that bubbled up at the end of Comey's term, that thousands of these FISA Coverage are on U.S. persons, U.S. person being another term for U.S. citizen or a legal alien or a U.S. corporation. So, Pfizer now is is being used in a very promiscuous way, and what one of the things that surfaced in the in the uh, in the Russian collusion investigation that's now well documented by the durham report and the durham report of 316 pages really validates a lot of the conclusions at the end of my book Uh, the the durham report goes into this surveillance of carter page a u.s citizen uh, who it turns out did nothing wrong and yet four very intrusive fisa warrants were used against him over the course of a year that was a violation of his rights as a U.S. citizen because FISA essentially suspends the Fourth Amendment, your protection against unreasonable searches and sieges. Yep. So FISA should never be used against an American. And that's what's going on now. And that's a reform that Congress can look at and make.
1: You mentioned standing before a jury with your hand raised saying you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. They, they There was an FBI lawyer, Kevin Kleinsmith, who changed is an F, a CIA agent to is not a CIA agent. So they, and he committed basically a fraud, uh, but got off scot free. So um, there's a lot of that we could definitely get into, but I wanted to go back to some of the t- guys at the top. You know, in Bethesda, Maryland, which is really just a suburb of D.C., uh, is Lockheed. Big government contractor James Comey at 44, another young protege, was named general counsel in 2005, replacing at the time 65-year-old who had been there 11 years. Any idea how a young guy like Comey got that gig at a $35 billion company before going on to be director of FBI?
2: Well, he had been, he had had several different positions in the Department of Justice uh, prior to being director. Um, And I I can't get into the mind of Lockheed Martin why they hired him. But, I mean, he had credentials.
1: Well, I guess the the real key would be why would Mueller turn around and pull him out of there and bring him in? Um, You know, I did some homework uh, on the early days of... Mueller when he was an agent uh, or working his way up um, in his crime, organized crime, let's say, uh, where it was with the uh, Whitey Bulger case and uh, Comey was involved in the Gotti case and Sally Yates was involved in this as well. And so a lot of these names that were involved in the FISA warrant problems with Carter Page and General Flynn are the same folks. I'm wondering if they just had themselves a little cabal there. Uh, that could pull all this off, even though it was completely out of bounds, legally speaking.
2: Well, some of what they did, to our mind, is out of bounds, legally speaking. Mueller, uh, excuse me, Comey had gone back to the Department of Justice from Lockheed Martin and was the Deputy Attorney General, the DAG, as we call him, which is a very important position, the number two in the Department of Justice. And... I have it in my book because I've spoke to several people who were present when this happened. It was a meeting as Mueller was getting ready to leave the FBI. And and as you may have found out in your research, uh, then President Obama extended him for an additional two years beyond his 10-year term. So Bob Mueller wound up serving longer than anybody else's FBI director, with the exception of J. Edgar Hoover. Mueller was explaining to or telling the executive conference, and that's a dozen or more of the top executives of the FBI, essentially all the assistant directors, and he was like the board of directors, and he was telling them about his conversation with Comey in the preceding days where Comey finally agreed to take the job, and he was making a joke about it, but it does tell us a lot about the both of them, and the joke was that Comey said he had reservations about becoming FBI director because he was currently the DAG, the Deputy Attorney General, and he thought being FBI director would be a step down. Uh, Mueller related to the executive conference at that meeting how he took a napkin and he wrote on a napkin the org chart of the DOJ, which shows the director of the FBI reporting directly to the Attorney General bypassing the Deputy Attorney General and Muller said, once Comey saw that, he said he'd take the job. And he thought this was very funny and he had everybody laughing at the meeting. But what's not so funny is the damage that Comey then proceeded to inflict on the FBI in his mishandling of these crucial investigations. First, the Hillary Clinton email investigation and then the Russian collusion investigation.
1: Mm. Um, so back, about a decade and a half, two decades, when Rudy Giuliani broke up the crime families as he was cleaning up New York. In Boston, Robert Mueller was working with Whitey Bolter. Uh, we know this. Did his coziness with the mob lead to a lot of bureau infiltration, like the movie that won the Academy Award, um, uh, uh, what's it called? The The Departed. And, and are some of the names we see today, like Stroke and McCabe and long forgotten Rosenstein, all from the Boston, Maryland field office? Uh his, his lackeys, I guess we would say, his his partners in crime?
2: Well, uh, I, I couldn't say to all of that. What I will say, and I go into the book is, well, number one, a sub theme throughout my book, if you've had the chance to read it, you would see this, and maybe you have, uh, is the cinema, is the different movies about the FBI, and I kind of give my take on them, to what extent I think they're accurate or not, concerning Whitey Bulger in that whole period, there were actually two movies that are often spoken about, uh, The Departed and uh, hmm, can't think of the other name for a second here but anyway, there were two different movies and uh,
1: the one with and, Johnny Depp, I think
2: yeah and, yeah, and in any event one was better than the other But <laughs> <laughs> in any event you're right about muller muller was in boston a lot he was an assistant u.s attorney he was the head of the criminal division of the u.s attorney's office for a time and he was the acting u.s attorney in boston for a time later in his career he was the u.s attorney in san francisco uh, in any event he had and i explained this because one of the principal characters told me this himself he had an almost uh, purient interest in not only Whitey Bulger, but from Mueller's point of view, and I go into this in the middle of the book, The Bad, where I talk about some injustice that I know of and have witnessed. He, he was very fascinated by the fact that Whitey Bulger's brother was William Bulger, who was a, an individual with actually a sterling reputation, who was then the president of the Massachusetts State Senate. Uh, and, and later became the president of the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, uh, and of course in social circles, Muller had crossed trails with him. So Muller kept bugging the case agents for details about these two men, and they didn't like it. They they thought it was a little out of order, and uh, a little nosy, and that he shouldn't even be that as the U.S. attorney, shouldn't be that aware of of actual identities of of uh, criminal informants. But that's that's one thing aside there in the middle of the book. But you brought it up. You asked about Mueller and Bolger.
1: Yeah. And at the same time or around that decade, uh, Bush's deputy attorney general from 2003 to 2005, Jim Comey. But a decade earlier, 87 to 93, he was deputy chief of the criminal division and helped prosecute the Gambino crime family. Uh, it's complicated, but gaudy. Whitey Bulger, Comey, Muller, Rosenstein, and Loretta Lynch all interacted at that time, didn't they?
2: Quite likely. Yeah.
1: So when the time came for the cast of characters to target the incoming president, they knew who to, who to talk to and who they could trust. And, of course, Lynch replaced Sally Yates, who had headed up the Olympic bombing that Mueller blamed on a security guard, Richard Jewell, falsely when it likely wasn't him but Eric Rudolph. So they'd all had their mis, missteps and worked together as kind of a yes. I don't know, just a comedy of errors.
2: And that was another movie. Clint Eastwood made a movie of that.
1: Yeah, the Richard Jewell. Yeah.
2: Yes. yeah,
1: which is very and embarrassing. And I talk about
2: people. that a little bit in the book. Uh, and, and one of my, I had, I was fortunate. I don't want to put myself at the center of everything. A lot of these matters, I was on the periphery of My role was peripheral to the, the main agent or the main prosecutor's role. But I got to see and talk to and interface with a lot of these people. And one person I got to, to know, I actually had a n- number of dealings with her, and I came to like her and respect her, was Attorney General uh, Janet Reno. And when I was a legal attache in Paris, Janet Reno came to Paris. Uh, and this was at the time immediately after the several weeks after the, um, the, the the downing of TWA 800 which we were treating as a, as a possible terrorist act and we were doing a full court investigation on it full pr- court press she came over and this Olympic Park bombing had just happened in the preceding five or ten days perhaps uh, in Atlanta Georgia uh, and of course I knew nothing firsthand about that case but As on all major bombings, and of course, a bombing at the Olympics, the immediate suspicion is that it's terrorism. So all our allies, our friendly services that we deal with, uh, and in my case, France, we provided them summaries of the investigation. And they do the same for us in similar circumstances. So that's all I really knew about the Olympic Park bombing was these summaries And uh, because I had a full plate myself dealing with the TWA case at that moment. And uh, so this fellow, Jules, uh, uh, his name was in it, uh, the security guard as the main suspect. And that's all I knew. But, and I talk about this in the book too, with the general public, as well as people in law enforcement, often there's this thing, confirmation bias and it's true with the public and the, and the press and the media, as well as law enforcement, in that you, 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 you assume you shouldn't, but you tend to assume that the accused uh, is guilty. That's an ongoing assumption in the media, in law enforcement, et cetera. So I just kind of took it like everybody else. Oh, they've identified the subject, Jewel. And that's all I did. Well, anyway, I'm going to a meeting with Janet Reno, the attorney general of the United States, and she and I are sitting in a car and the French have provided a driver and a bodyguard for this. And we're making a series of visits to high ranking French officials. And Janet Reno out of the blue turns to me and says, Tom, what do you think of this jewel or jewels as the suspect in Atlanta? And I'll tell you, I I was shocked here's the attorney general of the United States asking a guy who has nothing to do with the case for his opinion, but we had spent days together and it wasn't her first visit there. And I, I said, I, I don't know. You know, I am only reading summaries and I'm sure the details she was getting was much closer, much more detailed than anything I got. And, uh, I said, he sounds good for it. I think that's what I said. And she turned and her, her response shocked me as much as the question. She says, I'm not so sure. That's what she said to me in the car. Well, it was months later when we found out she was right to be suspicious. He wasn't the guy. And of course, as you referenced, Clint Eastwood made a movie about this.
1: Yeah, and Bob Mueller was pushing the theory that it, he was the guy. So there was some uh, some uh, loggerheads there. Um, so January 5th, 2017, from my layman's perspective, guy who looks at the news, that's the day it seemed like these the cast of characters that I just talked about decided that they were going to do something that was completely out of their job descriptions, out of their purview, out of the history of the of the uh, FBI since its founding. Yeah, it did some black stuff and it wasn't very nice all the way through. But Yates, together with then FBI Director Comey. Then CIA Director John Brennan, not supposed to operate inside the United States, and then Director of National Intelligence, which didn't exist back then, James Clapper, briefed Obama, (coughs) Commander in Chief, President of the United States, on Russia related matters in the Oval Office, which we now know because of reporting,
2: all lies. Yes. Yes. And what is telling about that, Comey, in his book, uh, where he makes no apologies for all the problems he's created, he relates that in just one or two paragraphs and it's very telling and i accept it on the face of what he he, he briefed them on what essentially we know now was the dirt in the um christopher Steele the do- uh, dossier the Steele dossier and he Comey, in describing president obama's reaction president obama shows himself to be a pretty savvy individual of Comey said when he got to the point, he related this scurrilous incident of these prostitutes pissing on the bed or pissing on Trump or whatever the hell they were doing or supposed to be doing, he said, President Obama didn't say anything, he just rolled his eyes. And that's perhaps the most appropriate way to behave in those things, not to say anything uh, whatsoever in, in that kind of situation. He then, the next day, according to his book, and I think this is documented elsewhere, he went to New York to brief the incoming president because at that period in January, and you have the exact date, uh, Trump has been elected president but has not been inaugurated or sworn in yet. He's with uh, this whole group of people and briefed Trump and some of his friends on it, and then he's been selected to stay behind and brief Trump one-on-one on this allegation, excuse me, this allegation about the prostitutes pissing and all that stuff. And uh, he does. And he says that in his book. And he says, Trump was dumbfounded and protested his innocence. And then he, he le- makes a joke about it in the book. He said, a week or five days later, uh, Trump calls him on the phone and says, listen, I want you to know that I would never do anything like that, and I didn't do it, and call me figuratively in the text of the book, is laughing about this. Well, of course, we know now, from Durham's report, certainly, that that was a complete fabrication. And, and Trump, in this instance, was a totally innocent person. But, but that's where we're at, and that's how these people behave. Yeah. And you said it right, Steve
1: quite sadistically, actually. So now today, we have 30 ex-FBI agents that stand up to support the whistleblowers who who exposed agencies' political bias. Heartfelt messages obtained exclusively by the Post, New York Post, show a deep and widely anguish about the politicization of the FBI. Marcus Allen spe- specifically said, age, uh, yeah, said agents were in January 6th, crowd as provocateurs and ray just this week said they weren't uh do you have any confidence republicans will hold him accountable if he lied a and um i think the theory i've seen is there's a holman rule where they could cut his salary but ray like Comey, is a very rich man so i'm not sure he's even in it for the salary but what do you you think of that uh what marcus allen had to say as a whistleblower because you're kind of a whistleblower too by telling uh, the, the patriotic truth in your book.
2: Well, uh, thank you. Um, I, I thought, and several people told me, boy, you're courageous writing this book. And I really never quite thought of it that way, but other people kept warning me. Uh, and other than, other than one or two people, I've never gotten anybody associated with the FBI give me any or a lot of pushback on this. And of course, from when I started to write it and I ran different drafts by different individuals, as you can imagine, in in writing a book, uh, I got a lot of reinforcement and a lot of positive feedback. But that was mainly from people of my own vintage retired FBI agents. Since I've written the book, and it's been out now almost six months, uh, I've gone to dozens of book signings in different states all over the country and book talks and what has really astounded me is on board current fbi agents and other fbi employees and the wives of fbi agents current fbi agents coming up to me and telling me you got it right we're glad you wrote this it's worse than you think and they fed me some more details and information like the the the, 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 the these intelligence analysts driving the agenda uh, the fact attorneys uh, brought into the bureau from outside were now put in charge of uh you know legal affairs congressional affairs public affairs uh, where these had all been positions held by career agents so i'm now getting a lot of feedback and this goes to the 30 people you reference from current fbi employees telling me yeah there's a real problem
1: mm. so there's a new whistleblower uh, an irs whistleblower, Gary Shapley, he's going to testify again at a House Oversight Committee hearing uh, next week about the DOJ, FBI, and IRS alleged interference in the Hunter Biden tax probe. That sounds like collusion. Uh, do you think this is all orchestrated out of the West Wing of the White House, or do you know uh, what can be done with an ideological aligned, lawless authoritarian left like this?
2: Well, I don't know where it's being run out of. I do know Uh, that there are so many questions around the whole Hunter-Biden matter, uh, first from the way the laptop was handled to this more recent information you're referencing. Uh, There's an old saying, once again, we, we should not jump to conclusions that the accused are guilty, but there's the old saying where there's smoke, there's fire. And certainly in this Biden matter, Hunter and his father, with so many different things coming forward, there's a lot of smoke. I think the most concrete smoke um, is, is is the what they call SARS reports, suspicious activity reports filed by U.S. banks, U.S. financial institutions. And one of the House committees have gotten a hold of them. Well over 100 suspicious activity reports involving money from overseas, uh, millions, tens of millions of dollars passing through a series of mere nominee accounts Uh, that was set up by the Bidens and ultimately finding its way into not just Hunter, but his uncle and other Biden family members. Uh, That's pretty concrete. There's something wrong there. I mean, it's classic money laundering. So this has to be pursued. And uh, and I mean, it has to be pursued.
1: Yeah, especially since they didn't register as FARA agents, as you talked about in the very beginning. Um, Yesterday, Ohio's Jim Jordan, who's the ranking Judiciary Committee member, uh, which I think is the FBI's main oversight and budget committee, you tell me, but he questioned Ray over allegations that an FBI office in Richmond, Virginia, again, that's a subsidiary of D.C., basically, had warned that some, quote, radical traditionalist Catholics in the area could pose an extremist threat. Uh, We all saw the Neil Team Six photos after George Floyd and sympathy with BLM, who stole millions, by the way, and saw the staged CNN raids on folks like Roger Stone and Trump's Mar-a-Lago. Is the agency fully owned by the left? And why are they anti-believers in Jesus, like supposedly the president is, and and plenty of Democrats also? um, And can it be reformed? Is there a reform path here?
2: Well, oh, um, oh, uh, regarding the, uh, the, the proposal from the Richmond Field Division, from some intelligence analysts there, uh, a lot of that material is available online. And the intelligence analyst there came up with this idea. Uh, it was approved by a senior intelligence analyst, and it was approved by the division's legal counsel. There's a legal principal legal advisor in each FBI field office. Uh, It's really shocking because when you read it, it's it's clear it's the thinking of somebody very woke, uh, very of the left wing today because uh, they use specific left wing language about reproductive rights as opposed to saying abortion. but ultimately, come down on that these traditional Catholics who are identified by a preference for worshiping in Latin, that's that's in this intelligence write-up, that they, they are a legitimate target uh, to be investigated, uh, to be surveilled uh, for domestic terrorism. Uh, it is such a crackpot idea, Uh, And it was knocked down eventually when it found its way to FBI headquarters. But nonetheless, it shows you that people are willing. These intelligence analysts who don't deal within the framework of the Constitution, they just speculate on things that they are a real danger. And they've come to the fore. And these current agents who I say have approached me at book signings, that's what they're telling me. And quote unquote, they're saying the intelligence analysts are driving the agenda. That's the quote they're giving me, and uh, so can there be reform? Yes, there can be reform. The FBI can be besa- saved if it goes back to its roots in the Constitution, and the instruction in the Constitution becomes uh, primary and important. Uh, but this free-ranging intelligence has to be has to, a grip has to there has to be a grip taken on it, and some of the things. Ray said yesterday are not very, don't, do not give me hope. Ray doesn't seem like a bad guy, but all along, he keeps saying it's the bad apples that there's nothing wrong with the culture. Well, it is the culture because it keeps happening and it keeps happening. And, and when he tried to deny yesterday that this telling Twitter who to censor is not impacting Americans free speech, that just flies in the face of the facts.
1: That's true. And like the Pike and Church Committees of the 70s, this committee should be bipartisan. But Ray condemned Republican figures who had called for the FBI and other law enforcement agencies to be defunded, including Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan of Ohio, while offering a warning about the potential consequences. He said we would have hundreds more violent crimes out on the street. Hard to believe because the police won't even do their their own job. And then he had Eric Swalwell, the Chinese spy lover, running cover for Ray attacking Jordan in that same exchange. So bipartisan is not going to happen. The Democrats seem to have completely embraced a, a lawless totalitarian FBI. And the Republicans seem completely feckless to do a darn thing about it, in my opinion. Um, maybe you disagree. But in the last few minutes here, please tell everybody where they can go to buy your book, find out more about you if you have a social media presence and uh, anything else you want them to know.
2: Yes, please uh, support the book. The book is The Fall of the FBI by Thomas J. Baker, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. The book's available on Amazon.com. That's where most people get their books. It's also available on BarnesandNoble.com and and in many Barnes and Noble stores. And I have a book site which gives you more opportunity and alternatives to find out about the book and get it. And that's ThomasJBakerBook.com www.thomasjbakerbook.com. The name of the book is The Fall of the FBI. And thank you, Steve, for this opportunity to mention that.
1: My pleasure. And I truly believe you wrote the book out of a love for the agency that may not exist anymore, but you didn't do it out of malice. From what I can tell, you did it because you want it to be the world's premier law enforcement agency. And uh, it has lost its way. And without people like you willing to tell the truth and say it, it can never find its way back. So thank
2: you. Thank you, Steve, and thank you for all that you do.
1: Choosing the right mortgage for your home financing depends on so many factors. Working with a mortgage lender that offers a broad selection of mortgage programs is key. At OneTrust Home Loans, they have helped many homeowners reach their home financing goals because they listen to anticipate your home financing goals and dreams. They aren't salesy, so for those 55 and older, you can trust them to help people not just survive, but thrive with extra cash flow. At OneTrust, service is everything. To speak with a mortgage specialist about your home financing goals, call Matt Helton, Nolensville Branch Manager at 615-400-6764. Be sure to tell them Steve and Steve from MC View sent you.
0: CalCon Mutual Mortgage LLC DBA One Trust Home Loans is an equal housing lender. NMLS 46375. All products are not available in all states. All options are not available on all programs. All programs are subject to borrow and property qualifications. Rates, terms, and conditions are subject to change without notice. For more information on reverse mortgages, visit OneTrustHomeLoans.com slash reverse-mortgage disclosures. I don't understand.
1: Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show, where we cover what we just heard. Producer Steve, what would you think of our guest, FBI author Thomas J. Baker? Tom, to me. Tom,
0: uh, you did a great job, Steve, and uh, I'm glad you did a little history there, and you kind of brought everybody up to speed. I did a little history um, about the FBI. It was actually in a different book, but uh, under the administration of how we all started in yeah, it's an amazing story about the FBI, and they were good guys, and they've become totally... Steve, I just want to say something. Uh, 9-11 changed a lot of things the way our government operates, and not for the best. Actually, completely flipped things upside down, all at that same time. Yeah. And uh, we didn't... And it's
1: it's horrifying that the, the an agency that ha- carries the power of life and death in their hands with a badge and a gun has been allowed to free reign all of this at taxpayer expense, ultimately. I mean, they yeah. are supposed to be working for us to serve and protect, you would say, if it was a police department. And they're not. They're playing political games. They're they're bu- jockeying for position for higher salaries. It, it's not what you would hope. There's not Jack Ryans or uh, uh, Jack <laughs> Bowers fiction. out there anymore. That,
0: no, that's fiction. Yeah.
1: But... We can always rely on our education and library system. Marxists elected to head American Library Association. The consequences of decades of unchecked climate change, class war, white supremacy, and imperialism had led us here. If we want a world that includes public goods like the library, we must organize our collective power and wield it. Last week, the American Library Association elected openly socialist Emily Drobinski to serve as the group's president elect for 2022 to 2023. On Draminsky's website outlining her platform for her presidential run she states quote so many of us find ourselves at the end of our worlds the consequences of decades of unchecked climate change class war white supremacy and imperialism she's white by the way have led us here if we want a world that includes public goods like the library we must organize our collective power and wield it Her platform calls for enhanced funding to schools, libraries, and communities, economic and racial justice for library workers and the communities in which we live and work, of course, environmental sustainability and collaboration and cooperation beyond our borders. Social and economic justice and racial equity requires that we make a material difference in the lives of library workers and patrons who have for too long Been denied power and opportunity on the basis of race, gender, sexuality, national origin, spoken language and disability, Drabinsky states commands as ALA president. I will direct resources and opportunities to a diverse cross section of the association and advance a public agenda that puts organizing for justice at the center of library work like command and control, she added. I added the command and control part. Her platform also looked to push the Green New Deal legislation. Floods, hurricanes, wildfires, and other consequences of climate change threaten libraries, (laughs) library workers, and library publics around the world. We must build on recent association work in this area and connect to broader public legislation in order to preserve libraries and communities for an uncertain future, her platform stated. She also noted that as president, she would develop and share a global vision of librarianship in which international cooperation and exchange are central to equity and justice. From organized attacks on library funding to attempts to ban books to state bans on what can and can't be taught in the classroom, all of us face pressures that get in the way of our core missions. Drabinsky later added, I think they deleted a part that said librarians of the world unite, but we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> As ALA president, I will bring an organizing approach to association leadership. Ah, there it is right there. Getting us talking with each other as we collectively develop a national campaign for libraries. How will I make that happen? Let's find out. Remember, there are more of us than there are of them, especially when we work together. I don't know what that means. Are there more librarians than voters? I don't think so. But anyway, following whatever it was, it worked to get her elected. Following the announcement that Drabinsky had been elected, she wrote on Twitter, "I just cannot believe that a Marxist lesbian who believes that collective power is possible to build and can be wielded for a better world is the president-elect of ALA Library. I am so excited for what we will do together. Solidarity. And my mom is so proud. I love you, mom." She added, <laughs> uh, "It's really there, April 13, 2022, at E. Drobinski." In a Jacobian piece written before the ALA election, reporter, people don't even know what the Jacobians were, but the fact that there's a magazine called that is embarrassing. But anyway, reporter Natalie Shure, who gets paid to write this, recounted formative events that led to Drabinsky's running for ALA president, one of which was a meeting with union members currently on strike at Long Island University in regards to a contract offer where union leaders told attendees that they would be voting yes on the contract or else, which Drabinsky took issue with, saying no one got... a say in it and wasn't able to read the contract she would later be involved in another union story in 2016 where liu management locked out the faculty canceling paychecks and health insurance plans. Drabinsky used her clerical skills or she could type to organize a fight back with union members allies and students with the lockout being ended in 12 days. I learned how much work it is to mount a defense against power Drabinsky told jacobin i learned how crucial it is to get people together in moments like that you've got to make a list you've got to write out everybody who's involved and has a stake and you have to talk to every single one of them and you have to get every single one of them to talk to somebody else and the conversation you have with each other are how you shape your strategy and how you figure out how to turn your complaints into demands That's the work of forming collective power. Drabinsky noted that this is the type of power that library workers need at the moment. Union struggles like this have been highlighted on Drabinsky's Twitter in length, including a New York City Amazon facilities fight to unionize. In response to her election, Drabinsky said, as we face an uncertain and challenging future, I know this. We have each other and we are enough. I am ready to get to work with all of you to strengthen our association and our field to support library workers and the communities we serve. Thank you for your confidence and support of my vision for ALA and your role in that vision. We have a lot of work ahead to build collective power for the public good. I can't wait to get started with all of you. I can't wait to never go into a library ever again.
0: Steve, what a bunch of made-up hogwash, just total hogwash. Everything she cited was complete bunk. And yet she got hired for the job, and now she's going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer money to promote something that has no need
1: to be promoted. Oh, no, it'll be banned books, but here we go. Montana leaves American Library Association over... Marxist lesbian president. The Montana State Good. Library Commission voted to cut all ties with the American Library Association on Tuesday, citing an inability to continue associating with an organization led by a self-described Marxist. At a meeting last month, the Montana State Library Commission reviewed a tweet from Emily Drabinsky, the president-elect of the American Library Association, in which Drabinsky described herself as a Marxist lesbian. Our oath of office and resulting duty to the Constitution forbids association with an organization led by the Marxist the commission wrote in a letter to the American Library Association. So there's that. However, largest teachers union in US blasted for promoting pornographic kids books dissolve the teacher unions. The country's largest teachers union is facing backlash after adding to its summer reading list, a children's book depicting oral sex and discussing masturbation. The National Education Association, this is the NAA, the larger one, I usually give the ATF, uh, the AFT a part-time, this is the bigger one. The largest teachers' union in the country added Gender Queer, which features explicit drawings of teens performing sex acts, to its summer reading list for educators on Monday. Stretch out on a beach or in your backyard, slather on your sunscreen, and dive into the summer reading recommendations from NEA today, the website says. Cartoonist Maya Kobaydi's graphic memoir, Gender Queer, has been promoted by the New York State Department of Education and was deemed the most. Quote, challenged book of 2022 by the American Library Association. The book's graphic images and apparent encouragement of children questioning their gender identity have been subject to much controversy after appearing in public school libraries throughout the US, leading to appalled parents nationwide. Let's hear from cartoonist May E, M A I A, whatever, CoBabies, K O B A B E, graphic memoir
3: my name is maya kobabe i am the author of *Gender Queer*, a memoir which is one of the most challenged books in the united states right now *Gender hmm. Queer* is the story of my life starting at about age two until i turn around 28. it focuses specifically on memories that have to do with gender identity sexuality and then coming out to family friends community and sort of my in my career and professional life when i started really talking about the deep vulnerable questions of my life people really responded to it and i started to get people saying things like i didn't know anyone else in the world felt this way i didn't know there was a word for this i thought i was the only one like reading these made me feel less alone like really like powerful responses and it was those responses that made me think oh maybe this material is worthy of a book or important enough for a book. I felt very alone in my gender experience as a teenager. And I'm very grateful that as an adult, I've been able to share this. And instead, I've been able to build such a loving and strong community out of sharing. I do not take the critique personally in the sense that I think the people saying negative things about my book are correct or that it is a valid Uh, statement about the quality of my work but I do take it personally as a citizen of this country who believes in free speech and believes in the freedom of information and who worked in libraries for 10 years and is a huge supporter and lover of libraries (laughs) and I think that an attack on on libraries an attack on free speech is an attack on every single American citizen myself included so I take it very personally in the sense that I feel like I am seeing the freedoms of our country being degraded. Um, but I do not take it personally in that I think that I have written a bad book.
0: Of course she doesn't think it's a bad book. It's her life oh. after all.
1: I think it's a bad book. But here's an exclusive. Biden-backed teacher union launches national LGBTQ indoctrination initiative. The Biden-backed teachers union doesn't think enough is being done to give LGBTQ+, plus whatever comes next, students and teachers the resources they need. The largest teachers union in America has just backed a new initiative to further implement LGBTQ+, whatever comes next, indoctrination among other educators and students. Apparently, the Biden-backed teachers union doesn't think enough is being done to give LGBTQ+, students the resources they need. The National Education Association is led by Becky Pringle and has 3 million members, educators and allies to advancing justice and excellence in public education is the nation's largest labor union by bar none and has members spread across every single state and 14,000 communities. The NEA's 161st annual meeting took place in Orlando July 2 through 6, and the price tag for all the extra resources and in place, implementation will be $583,400. Not going to the kids. Clip number two.
4: Three, we have to see the ability to engage in these conversations with some nuance and some skill as a basic qualification and if you can't do that you're just simply not qualified in today's workplace no matter what school you went to and how you know acclaimed you are if you don't have these skills um, and we have to truly see it so many organizations have the diversity question if they even have one. And it's one question with no weight and no one on the hiring committee even knows how to assess a good answer. So if you see it as a true qualification, you, you'd be willing to say it's a failed search uh, and we'll, we'll go again, but we're not going to settle for less than what we say we value. There are risks, you know, we, we know throughout our history, you know, this work does not come without risks. It does not come without sacrifice. It does not come, you know, without pain, and unfortunately violence. So this is where I just remember tipping point theory, which is Malcolm Gladwell's theory that you don't need everyone. You don't even need 50%, that tipping points happen at 30% roughly. And then I think, oh, oh, that's right, how many I, people? I Steve can do that. Didn't right? take I, the shot. I can at least go for that and not expect that I can get everyone. But what I wanna do is create a culture that actually spits out those who are resistant as opposed to what it does now, which is spit out those who want to uh, break with white solidarity and and contribute, if that makes sense, right? Uh, and then I'm a big believer in affinity space, in affinity work, and I think people of color need to get away from white people, <laughs> and and have some community um, with each other. And I'll I'll let that go and maybe see if anyone else wants to pick it up.
0: Steve, yeah, what, what I would add. Is- what- these these yeah. people have nothing to do in their life, and they get paid to invent busy work. And that's right. It,
1: it what is was the color of useless. the skin of the woman who just said affinity spaces. She's white. She's white. So why wouldn't they want to go to South America, Central America, Caribbean Islands, Mexico, Africa, <laughs> India, subcontinent, Turkey, Afghanistan, Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, anywhere else, but here with this nonsense? They obviously hate themselves. Yes. I don't know why they end up gravitating towards the education field, but there you go. Proof positive they do. Clip number three.
2: What he had to say about that.
5: If you don't want to hear it in a school board meeting, why should children be able to check it out of the school system? Yeah. You see, we have perverts that are perverting our kids and you all sit back smug in your chairs and celebrate diversity, equity, and inclusion, but you don't want me to read it so you can hear it.
2: Reverend John Aminchukwu spoke at that school board meeting, and he joins me now. Reverend, thank you so much for being here. They did not let you talk about the book, but I will. What's in this book?
5: (laughs) This book is for children 10 years of age and— up, this book is not soft porn. It's hardcore porn. It details explicitly with pornographic images, homosexual sex, lesbian sex, um, straight sex. It promotes and glorifies masturbation while speaking against religion to may call that behavior a sin. This book is used as a tool to create what I call mental rape in the hearts and the minds of children. We are robbing kids of their innocence in America as we allow diversity, inclusion, and equity to dominate our schools. And so many of our librarians are bringing this kind of material into the public school system because they believe that children need to see themselves on the shelf. I don't believe that this is perfectly normal. I believe that this is perfectly perverted. In it.
1: Mm-hmm. Our friend John Amanchuku, why the diversity, equity, and inclusion push in classrooms is perfectly perverted and leading children down a slippery slope. See, I don't make this stuff up. Do you want to say something, Steve? I see your mind yeah, is I, of-
0: I just, I just want to say that, again, uh, Satan and his minions are having their heyday right now. And under the banner of busy work and inclusion and diversity and all that nonsense, where it's all nonsense, where it's invented out of whole cloth, um, there's a there's a small percentage of people pushing that. And unfortunately, the general public, Steve, a lot of people are lapping it up like a, a hungry dog um, in new cow's milk. I mean, they are sucking it in, thinking they're doing the right thing in
1: support of this. Churches yeah, included. It's gonna take a, a real a real pushback on the other yeah, side. Yeah, thirty percent, Steve.
0: Thirty percent. We need to be that thirty percent that tips it the other way.
1: Yeah, for sure. And to get that middle in involved too, because it's just so nonpartisan. I hate it. Um, Google, a company, private company, publicly traded, earns money for shareholders, will record everything users post online to train its AI products. It's open season on public post as Google announces it will its new privacy policy. Most people don't read those when they say okay. Google will record everything people post online in order to train its artificial intelligence products. What could go wrong? On July 1st, 12 days ago, Google amended its privacy policy to allow it to scrape comments that posters put on the internet to help it to hone its AI tools. The tech company's plan to harvest and harness online public data is raising new privacy concerns. Google's previous user policy stated that publicly available information would only be scraped to help train its language models for Google Translate. The U.S. tech giant's history of changes to its user policy statement is open to the public. There are also concerns that advanced AI technology will be used to steal intellectual property and eliminate several professions done by humans, along with violating user privacy. Here's something about...
0: So much for their do-no-evil. <laughs> they, are evil. they are evil. Justice
1: Sotomayor's staff has reportedly prodded public colleges and libraries to put her books out. A report on Justice Sonia Sotomayor claimed that she earned $3.7 million in book sales since joining the Supreme Court, partially because her staff prodded libraries and colleges that hosted her in the past to buy her works. The Associated Press released a report based on over 100 open records requests to public institutions where Sotomayor appeared in the past as a lecturer or guest speaker. The review shows that Sotomayor's taxpayer-funded courts st- staff worked to promote sales for her memoir and or her children's book, Just Ask. On multiple occasions, two health set cen- up, uh, not fun. Next story. Two health centers at the largest school district in Washington State are operated by a nonprofit, which provides, among other things, gender transition medication and referrals for gender transition surgeries. Listen to this. The Nova Wellness Center and the Meany Health Center are available to middle and high school students in Seattle Public Schools. Both centers offer gender reaffirming care to students according to documents obtained by Parental Rights Advocate Group, Parents Defending Education. SPS, SPS, Seattle Public Schools, notes on its website that the Nova Wellness Center offers the services at no cost and takes a trauma-informed approach. Some of CDCHS's health services include hormone therapy, gender transition, medications, and referrals to gender transition surgeries. Ah, Last story. In 2015, majority of Americans in all key subgroups expressed confidence in higher education, with one exception, independence, 48%. By 2018, though confidence had fallen across all groups with the largest drop, 17 percentage points among Republicans, in the latest measure, confidence once again fell across the board, but Republicans sank the most, 20 points to 19%, the lowest of any group. Confidence among adults without a college degree and those age 55 and older dropped nearly as much as Republicans since 2018. Oh, I guess there's one more story. Justin. Justin. S.B. 14, a bill by Senator Shannon Grove, Republican Bakersfield, California, to classify human trafficking of minors as a serious felony and categorize it under California's three strikes law for re-offenders, failed in the Assembly Public Safety Committee. Important context on the bill to make human trafficking of minors a violent felony in California that the Assembly Public Safety Committee blocked in a party-line vote, It was amended to only go after traffickers targeting minors, and California Democrats still blocked it. It was the California Assembly Public Safety Committee that killed the bill. Now we add in the porn in schools, the drag queens in lingerie, the naked cyclists at family-friendly parades and bondage displayed everywhere, and tell me that sexualization of children is a myth. It isn't. It's happening right before our eyes. Stay tuned for my Thoughts of the Week. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizedHealth.com, you lose fat fast simply and naturally without restrictive exercise or cardboard dry tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof, look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know, I'm an alumnus, and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. health.com.
2: Hey, everybody. This is uh, Joseph Padilla. I'm the uh, school board representative for Zone 4 for Wilson County, Tennessee, and I'm out here on the uh, Mill Creek View podcast.
1: Welcome to my quotes for the day. But before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View podcast. Just go to Rumble or Spotify and hit that subscribe button. The end of democracy and the defeat of the American Revolution will occur when government falls into the hands of lending institutions and moneyed incorporations. Thomas Jefferson. All tyranny needs to gain a foothold is for people of good conscience to remain silent. Also Thomas Jefferson. The only people who don't want to disclose the truth are the people with something to hide. Barack Obama, there were no whistleblower protections that would have protected me. And that's known to everyone in the Intelligence community. There are no proper channels for making this information available when the system fails comprehensively. Edward Snowden. I have to be very careful about what I can say about when we do and do not and where we have and have not used confidential human sources. But to the extent that there's a suggestion, for example, that the FBI's confidential human sources or FBI employees in some way instigated or orchestrated January 6th, that's categorically false, Mr. Ray said when asked whether the FBI had confidential human sources at the Capitol. 30 former FBI agents, including a retired deputy assistant director, head of counterterrorism, and five SWAT team members have spoken out publicly in support of suspended FBI whistleblower Stephen Friend. Their heartfelt messages obtained uh, exclusively by the New York Post show a deep and widespread anguish about the politicization of the FBI. Quote, it's time to stop the FBI from being the enforcer of a political party's ideology, said Ernie Tibaldi, a retired agent from San Francisco, we need to reestablish the FBI as the apolitical and independent law enforcement entity that it always was. He expressed gratitude to Friend for having the courage to stand up to the corruption that has taken over the leadership of the FBI. That's it for this episode and this week. Really hoped you liked it. Thank you, Thomas Baker, for reminding us of a day when the FBI was less arrogant and more successful. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, Editor-in-Chief of mcview.us. Peace in our time.
2: The FBI. A QM production.
5: i